Heavenly Father, Lord, we're approaching Your Word now. And Father, we don't treat uh, Your Word hastily. We don't treat it uh, without a careful eye. We treat it, Lord, in the power of Your Spirit. And we ask Your Spirit to be upon this study that we might carefully handle the Word of truth. Father, uh, I know today we are dealing with a, a passage of Scripture that is often, often misinterpreted. I pray, Lord, that the, uh, the accurate rendering of this verse would be clear to us today. I pray that Your Spirit would help us and guide us as we understand Your Word and apply it to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The year was 1992. The scene was a gymnasium of a small Christian school where hundreds of young, impressionable students had gathered for chapel. A young Christian girl of about 12 years of age sat down in the gym along with her classmates. This young girl had grown up in a loving Christian home. She had come to believe in Jesus Christ as her Savior at a very young age. She had been instructed well in the truths of the Bible, both at home and in her Sunday school. She loved God, and she knew that God loved her. She never doubted God's love for her. And she was confident that one day she would live forever with God when this life was over. The speaker that day at her Christian school chapel was a youth pastor from one of the local churches. She didn't know him, but when his message was over, she would never forget him. The speaker strode to the pulpit with passion in his heart and an earnest desire to make a difference in the lives of these young Christian school students. He opened his Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. And he read, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? And then came the words that would haunt this young girl's life for the next decade. Have you tested yourself to see if you're in the faith? Have you examined your life to make sure that you are a Christian? The young pastor went on to suggest that if all the students sitting in the gymnasium paused long enough to properly examine themselves, a good portion of those students who thought they were Christians, would soon become enlightened to the fact that they were not. In an instant, the faith of this young girl, and most likely many of the students with her, was crushed by the words of this well-meaning speaker. In an instant, the assurance of her salvation was smothered. In an instant, her sense of eternal security evolved 
into a persistent state of worry and doubt about her salvation. The speaker's words would haunt this young woman for much of the next ten years of her life. Over these ten years, she frequently practiced what we might call a salvation self-test, whereby she introspected, looked within herself, considered her level of faithfulness, good works, obedience, to see if it was enough evidence to prove that she was in fact a Christian. If she was having a good day or a good week in her relationship with God, she would feel somewhat assured of her salvation. But when the occasional bad day came and she felt estranged from God, she would deeply fear that somehow she wasn't a Christian. Rarely would a week go by without her thinking within herself, am I really a Christian? I speculate that this girl's story relates to some of you. I imagine that some of us have at one point in our lives been able to identify with this girl's story. And I think it's not too far for me to say that some of you hearing this story right now are thinking within yourselves, that's exactly how I feel right now. To you who are feeling this way, I have two things to say to you. One, you are not alone in this fear. Many Christians have at one point in their lives dealt with this kind of fear that they are not saved. In fact, the story that I tell you today is none other than the story of my wife. It was my wife who spent ten years of her life worrying deeply about her salvation because of one off-handed comment by a well-meaning speaker. The second thing I want to tell you is that there is hope. The reason my wife labored through ten years of doubting her salvation was because this well-intentioned youth pastor was not carefully handling the word of truth. His interpretation of 2 Corinthians 13.5 was wrong. And when my wife came to understand 2 Corinthians 13.5 as the Lord intended it, along with other clear teaching about the assurance of salvation and the doctrine of eternal security, her doubts ceased. Today she is confident in her eternal destiny. And so can you. And so can you. Upon closer inspection, the self-inspection advocated by Paul in 2 Corinthians 13.5 has nothing to do with justification. Nothing to do with it. And we're going to see why today. Not only that, we're going to be reminded today of where, where our assurance of salvation comes from. Doubt will abound when we look at ourselves. But assurance is found when we cling to the promise of Jesus Christ that all who believe in Him have everlasting life. The title of my message today is Examine Yourselves. Subtitle, What Paul Is and Isn't Saying in 2 Corinthians 13.5. What Paul is and isn't saying in 2 Corinthians 
13.5. Go ahead and turn there if you're not already there. Let's begin to understand this text. Let's read it again. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 5, Paul says, Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified? Let's begin this process by asking a simple question. Who is being subjected to the self-examination in 2 Corinthians 13.5? Who is being subjected? What, what people are being subjected to this self-examination? Anybody? The Corinthians, right? This is Paul's letter to the church at Corinth. And he's giving them a command. It is the Corinthians who are being asked, admonished, commanded by Paul to examine themselves. The answer is obvious. But is it? You see, not only is Paul issuing a command to the Corinthians to be examiners of themselves, but the reason he does this is because the Corinthians have already examined the Apostle Paul. Note this carefully in your handout. It is critical to recognize that the imperative we read in 2 Corinthians 13.5 is given in reaction to what Paul has already been subjected to. I say again, the imperative we read is given in reaction to what Paul has already been subjected to. The Corinthians are testing Paul in 2 Corinthians. And the onside of the book, the beginning of the book, helps us to understand this. Notice what Paul says in the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. He says this, For our boasting is this, the testimony of our conscience that we conducted ourselves in the world in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God and more abundantly toward you. For we are not writing any other thing to you than what you have read or understand. Now I trust you will understand even till the end, as also you have understood us in part, that we are your boast, Paul says, as you also are ours in the day of of the Lord Jesus. Pay close attention to this text. Verse 12. Paul is defending, defending both he and his colleagues' conduct and integrity. Verse 13. He is defending, defending his speech. There's no hidden agenda. There's no double talk in my words, Paul says. Verse 14. Paul's saying, you can be confident in my ministry and my integrity. And I'd like to be confident in yours. The onset of the book of 2 Corinthians suggests that Paul is beginning to defend himself against a church who are beginning to throw accusations his way. Some in the church at Corinth are questioning the legitimacy of Paul's apostolic authority. They are inspecting the Apostle Paul. And upon close inspection, they are finding him lacking. A good portion of these accusations are listed here. I've, I've given you them kind of in bulk order. These are accusations against the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 10 and 12 only. So much more in the rest of the book. They said that Paul walked according to the flesh. These are either direct or implied accusations based on Paul's responses. They said you're a weak person with contemptible speech, maybe double talk. 
You have overextended authority, Paul. You're inferior to all the other apostles. You are lacking in knowledge. You've treated us as inferior to other churches. You've greedily desired our money. This is what Paul is defending himself against in much of the book of 2 Corinthians. Most particularly the latter chapters. In all of this, some at Corinth were resolute in their conviction that Paul was not fit to lead, teach, judge, or carry out the duties of an apostle of Jesus Christ. Yet note carefully, note carefully, in none of these accusations against Paul do we find the Corinthians questioning the existence of Paul's salvation. Nowhere in 2 Corinthians do we find the church members accusing Paul of not being a Christian. They only question his faithfulness. They only question his obedience to Christ. They only question the extent of his authority. And in response to these accusations, Paul spends a sizable portion of chapters 11, 12, and 13 in responding to these criticisms. He spends a sizable portion of the latter part of the book looking at himself. Examining himself. Inspecting himself. And when he does, he finds himself above reproach. Our text, 13.5, concerns one particular accusation against Paul. In particular, it concerns the accusation of weakness behind me. It is likely that some at Corinth despised Paul's teaching on weakness. He spoke about embracing weakness and humility as a believer. He spoke about the weakness of Christ. How Christ died in weakness. And it's likely that the Corinthians despised this teaching on weakness, both for him and how our Lord experienced his death. They appreciated, they were of a city, I should say, of wealth and great power. Their citizens were not particularly disposed to accepting notions of weakness. They liked men and teachers who were not bashful to wielding authority. And Paul was advocating weakness as a method of the Christian life. Having reflected on the charge of weakness, Paul responds in chapter 13, verses 2 to 4. This is his response to the charge of weakness. This is what he says. I have told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time, and now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest, that if I come again, I will not spare. Since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you, for though He was crucified in weakness, yet He lives by the power of God, For we also are weak in Him, but we shall live with Him by the power of God toward you. What Paul is responding to is the charge that he is a weak apostle. That he is weak and slow to judge, slow to discipline, a man of not much power. And they're charging him saying, Paul, you're a man of weakness. And this is Paul's response to him. He says in verse 3, Since you seek a proof, Corinthians, 
of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. He goes on to say, he goes on to say that we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. In other words, we're coming in power. Let me paraphrase what verses 2 to 4 might be like in modern language. This is what Paul is most likely saying here. You accuse me of weakness. You accuse me of being feeble in presence and showing too much grace and timidity in my speech and actions. You assume the chief apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ should be a man of strength, power, and command authority by his words and deeds. So be it. So be it. I will acquiesce to your allegations. The next time I come, I will not spare anyone who is deserving of discipline or judgment. I will not spare anyone who is in sin. I will not spare anyone who is walking in a path that is contrary to the Word of God. I will come to you with the authority of Jesus Christ by the power of Almighty God. You asked for this, Corinth. I will give you this. Prepare yourselves accordingly. That's what Paul's saying in verses 2-4. to You accuse me of weakness, so be it. Next time I come, I will bring discipline. I will bring a firm hand. And you will see what it's like when an apostle comes in the power of God. Friends, this defense precedes verse 5. This, these comments by Paul precede verse 5. And so as we read verse 5, we should read them in the spirit of these comments behind me. Now we come to verse 5. It is only natural now, in light of what Paul has said, to see what we see in 13.5, he says, So examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Prepare yourselves. Get ready. Clean house. Why? Because Paul is coming with the authority of Jesus Christ by the power, not the weakness of God, by the power of Almighty God now, and He will not spare those found lacking. He will discipline, He will judge, He will refine sinning persons in the church at Corinth. This serves, verse 5 serves as an opportunity for the Corinthians to clean house, to examine themselves as they've examined Him, to rectify themselves as they've attempted to rectify Him. It is, as you might say, the calm before the storm. Now, I want to pick apart verse 5 phrase by phrase. Because as we do, we will see all the more why this verse has nothing to do with the assurance of salvation. Nothing to do with it. Let's look at it phrase by phrase. The first phrase, examine yourselves. A synonym would be test yourselves. The term yourselves that you see behind me in yellow in both sets, are given in the emphatic position in Greek. That is to say, these words are the start of the sentence. Yourselves examine. Yourselves test. Paul says, you've been, you've been testing me. You've been examining me. Now I'm going to turn the table. 
Your turn to examine. Your turn to consider whether Jesus Christ is speaking through you. Moreover, <coughs> excuse me, that you say, well, wait a minute, Pastor Neil, that, okay, it says examine yourselves, test yourselves, he's turning the table, but, but, look what it says after examine yourselves. He says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. In the faith. See if you're in the faith. Don't these words indicate that Paul is questioning their salvation? Isn't that obvious? Isn't that exactly what those words mean? I don't deny that a a casual reading of verse 5 may look like Paul's questioning their salvation. I don't deny that. It looks like it. From an English reading... From a casual English reading, it looks like he's questioning their salvation. But sadly, this phrase, in the faith, in te piste, is terribly misunderstood. Terribly misunderstood by many well-meaning Christians. In reality, all, all, all the available evidence that goes back to this phrase, in the faith, in te piste, All of it suggests that Paul is not questioning the existence of their faith. What he is doing is questioning whether Jesus Christ is dynamically at work within them. Take a look at how the Scriptures use in the faith. This same phrase, in te piste in Greek, this is how it's used elsewhere in Scripture. The only other use of this phrase, the exact phrase in the faith, in Paul's letters to Corinth, refer to standing fast, in the faith. That is to say, be diligent in the faith. Be strong in the faith. Hold your ground in the faith. Two. Only two other Scriptures quote this phrase exactly. First Chronicles 3, 9.31 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and Titus 1.13, neither of which refer to becoming a Christian. Three. All nine remaining Scriptures that merely drop the word in or the word the, so it might say in faith or the faith, before the term faith, never once are used in reference to a person's positional justification in Christ. I list all of the verses. What does this mean? To be very clear, the Bible never uses the phrase in the faith, to mean to be a Christian. Not once. Not once in the Word of God is the phrase, in the faith, or in faith, or the faith, used in the Scriptures to refer to one's eternal justification in Christ. Paul is not calling into question their faith. What Paul is doing is he's holding up their lives. He's holding up their lives to the same level of scrutiny that they've held his. He's holding up their lives to that level of scrutiny and he's urging them, test yourselves. Examine yourselves. You've been testing my authority. You've been examining me. Now it's your turn. Are you mature in the faith? Are you worthy of being a leader, 
a teacher in the church of Jesus Christ. Paul's not questioning their salvation. They didn't question his. He's questioning their faithfulness. Jody Dillow makes the following comment about 2 Corinthians 13.5. Great theologian. He says this, Being in the faith refers to consistency in the Christian life, not possession of it. Got a man with his dog there, you know? Good old, reliable, faithful dog. Consistent dog. Reliable dog. Consistency in the Christian life. That's what in the faith means. Being in the faith. Striving with Christ. It is not referring to the possession of everlasting life. Let's move on. What about the phrase, Jesus Christ is in you? Doesn't that indicate that Paul's questioning their eternal salvation? After all, he says, don't you know that Jesus Christ is in you? Here again, many well-meaning Christians contend that this phrase means that Paul might be questioning their spiritual rebirth. But as we just noted the synonyms between examine yourselves and test yourselves, so also we should take as synonyms the phrase in the faith and Jesus Christ is in you. Moreover, and this is even more striking, is if we go all the way back to verse 3, we see what Paul means when he says, when he discusses about Jesus Christ being in a person. What does he say about that in verse 3? This is what he says. I've told you before, and foretell as if I were present the second time, that if I come again, I will not spare, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak toward you, but mighty in you. The Corinthians were examining Paul. They were holding his life up to a level of scrutiny, and they were saying, Christ isn't in you! But they didn't mean... You're not saved. What they meant was, you're not a spokesman for the person of Jesus Christ. Your life is not good enough, Paul, to be considered an apostle of the church of Jesus Christ. Christ isn't speaking through you. We don't have to listen to you. What's Paul doing? Holding up their lives. And saying, do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? In other words, is Christ speaking through you? Is Jesus Christ, is He given you the authority to be a spokesman on behalf of Him? St. Hodges One of my favorite theologians says this about this phrase. He says, The statement, Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? has no more to do with the question of salvation than do the words in the faith. What Paul has described of his own experience shows, shows that he is thinking of Jesus Christ being in himself or in the Corinthians in a dynamic, active, and vital sense. It's well put. That is well put. What about the final phrase? Oh, I don't know, Pastor Neil. That last word really troubles me. It says disqualified. Do you not know that Jesus Christ is in you unless you are disqualified? 
The term disqualified, adakimoi in Greek, is the antithesis. It's an adjective, and it's the adjectival antithesis of the word to test, dakimazo, in verse 5. Interesting thing about how Paul uses this word. He never uses this word, ever, adakimoi. He never uses this Greek word to refer to losing or, or to not having your salvation. This is how he does use it, though. 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He says this about this word. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain the prize. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty. Thus I fight not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Friends, justification is hardly the topic of 1 Corinthians 9.27. Far from it. Far from it. The context is clear. Paul says there's reward for faithfulness. There's reward for discipline. There's reward for being obediently subjective to Jesus Christ. And Paul wants that reward. And so he disciplines his body, lest he should be disqualified for that reward. Bob Wilkin makes this comment about 1 Corinthians 9.27. He says, Paul said in, one, in, in 1 Corinthians 9.27 that he feared that after he preached to others, he himself might be disqualified. Clearly, he did not fear hell. What he did fear was being disapproved for the prize of ruling with Christ. Likewise, the Corinthians were in danger of being disapproved for that prize. Same topic. Same topic. What you see in 1 Corinthians 9.27 is what you are seeing in 2 Corinthians 13.5. Paul's holding up their lives and saying, you've made these false accusations against me. Is Jesus Christ speaking in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified? Perhaps you are speaking out of turn. Perhaps your faith is immature. Perhaps you've made comments about me that are false and the Lord is displeased. And when I, Paul, bring up the idea that you might be disqualified, I'm not suggesting you might not be saved. I'm suggesting that you are losing out on your reward. You are losing out on the prize of ruling with Jesus Christ in the kingdom to come. Paul doesn't want them to lose that that reward. So he says, examine yourselves. It's your turn. Test yourselves. So whether you are in the faith, test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you unless indeed you are disqualified? But again, I, I, wanna, I don't want to leave us with the idea that Paul wants them to be disqualified. He doesn't. He doesn't. And so he goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 13, verses 7 to 11, these kinds of comments. Look what he says in his final exhortations to the church at Corinth. I've given you selections. Now I pray to God that you do no evil but that you should do what is honorable. For we are glad when we are weak. Notice the topic of weakness. 
And you are strong. And this also we pray that you may be made complete, Corinthians. Finally, brethren, farewell, become complete. Be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. One last thing about this. Let's suppose, let's suppose everything I've said is bunk. Let's suppose everything, I, all the evidence I've given you, you're just like, wrong, no, incorrect, exegesis. You interpreted that incorrectly. It has everything to do with salvation, Pastor Neil. I don't believe you. Okay, let's, let's suppose you're right. Let's suppose you're right. Let's suppose Paul is questioning the salvation of the Corinthians. What would Paul do after questioning the salvation of a church that he dearly loved, dearly wanted to see succeed, dearly wanted to see these people become Christians? What would he do after verse 5? What would he do? He'd preach the gospel. What does he do in verses 7 to 11? Do you see the message of eternal life in the latter parts of 2 Corinthians? Do you see Paul saying, This is how you get saved? I'm questioning your salvation. Verse 5, ah, you, you might not be in the faith. I don't know. You should have doubts. Oh, and by the way, do no evil. Be good. Be honorable. Be peaceful people. Would that make any sense to you? No. Is that not reprehensible? for Paul to do if, in fact, verse 5, he is questioning their salvation. Would it not be reprehensible? Yes. If verse 5 had any inkling of Paul questioning the legitimacy or the existence of the salvation of the people in Corinth, then verses 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, and following to the end of the chapter, which have nothing to do with how to become a Christian would be reprehensible. But Paul doesn't talk about how to become a Christian after verse 5. Instead, he's talking to Christians. He's talking to people who he knows are saved. So he says, hey, stop doing evil. Become complete. Live in peace. Don't falsely accuse me. Friends, let it be indelibly clear. Let it be indelibly clear. 2 Corinthians 13.5 has nothing to do with justification. Anyone who teaches you that is wrong. They're wrong. Absolutely wrong. I fear so often that many well-meaning, well-meaning 
well-meaning Christians, well-meaning pastors, well-meaning scholars, well-meaning teachers, point you to that verse and say, well, you've got to test yourself. Test yourself. Look inside. See if you're a Christian. Can't find it here. I would make the contention you can't find it anywhere in the Word of God. But you certainly can't find it here. You certainly can't find it here. What is Paul saying? What isn't Paul saying in 2 Corinthians 13.5? Paul wrote this verse as a reactionary command to many at Corinth who were unduly questioning the apostles' integrity, authority, and use of apostolic power upon his own self-inspection and upon finding himself above reproach Paul admonished his accusers to participate in the very same exercise. They were to ask themselves, am I fit to lead, teach, judge, or carry out the authority, carry out authority in the church of Jesus Christ? Friends, Paul did not advocate that such introspection and self-testing be exercised for the purpose of assessing one's justification, but rather one's progression in Christian growth and maturity. But I do want to I do want to go back to that story about my wife. She lost assurance for 10 years because of this preacher. One false word uh, by someone not carefully handling the word of truth. How'd she get it back? I ask you a question. Can I have assurance of my salvation? Can I, can I be sure? Don't I have to look within myself? Don't I, don't I have to look at my life of, of fruit or faith? Or, or, or don't I have to look at my obedience or my commitment or my perseverance? I submit to you that the Christian church over history has given you three answers. Given the people of the church of Jesus Christ, three answers to this question. Can I have assurance of my salvation? We're going to look at all three answers. The first two we're going to find problems with. The latter one we're going to see it coinciding with what the Bible says. Some people suggest, number one, no, I can't. I can't have assurance of my salvation. Only God knows if I'm saved. Some churches teach that. Um, some theological systems teach that. Uh, that you can't have assurance. Only God knows if I'm saved. There's a significant problem with this, though. Significant problem. The problem is this. This mindset denies repeated claims in the Bible that we can be sure of our salvation. I've just listed these scriptures for you. There's many, 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 many others. I've given you a few. A smidget that I'd like you, if, if you have questions about it, go, go home on your own. Read them plainly and tell me, is this not assurance of salvation? Number one, we've got to throw out. It's not biblical. The Bible says we can be sure that we're saved. So let's go to number two. There are some people who say, yes, I can have assurance if I continue in the faith until I die. If I don't, I was never a Christian to begin with. Now, for, put aside the phrase, you know, in the faith. I mean, we, we, I just, 
we just kind of talked about that today, but consider it as, consider it as if I continue in a life of faith. Okay? Continue in a life of faith. I can have assurance. And if I don't continue in a life of faith, then, well, I was never a Christian to begin with. Um, I, know, I know, there's no doubt, I, I, no doubt in my mind that many of you have at one point or perhaps today hold this view. No doubt. I held this view once. I held this view for maybe two years of my life. I want to show you very clearly why this view cannot be true. This view cannot be true. It's not possible. And this is why. There are problems with what we might call persevering in the faith. Um, and this is, these are the problems. Let's, let's take a look at a, a syllogism, if you will. Next slide. Problems with perseverance. I'm going to give you two premises and a conclusion. Premise number one. Premise A. A person can be assured of their salvation if they persevere in faith until the end. Okay, that's our first premise. Let's suppose that a person can be assured of their salvation if they persevere in the faith. Let's, 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 let's embrace that for a moment. Let's accept that for a moment. Premise B. No one knows they will persevere until the end. Is that fair? Is that a fair statement? Would anyone disagree with that statement? Um, I, have not met, I have not met one person who disagrees with that statement. Not one. I would love to meet someone who agrees with that because I've never met a Christian, Calvinist, Arminian, this, that, and the other, all sides of Christian... Christian theological systems and, and beliefs in churches. I've never met one person who believes that. Everyone freely says, yes, I do not know if I will persevere to the end. Fair statement? Yes. What's the conclusion? No one can be sure that they are saved. Fair statement? I think so. I think so. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Wait a minute. What, if, what if I'm persevering now and I, I can have that assurance? Well, okay, okay. Maybe for a moment in your in your understanding of the word, in your understanding of theology, maybe for that moment of that good day, that good week, that good month, you can feel a sense of security. But do you know at the end whether you'll be saved? You'd be surprised. You would be surprised how many pastors and theologians, people you read about in your Christian bookstores, you would be surprised how many of them freely admit this conclusion. I'm not, I, I don't want to name names. It's not the purpose of this. But you would be surprised how many of them freely admit this conclusion that they're not sure that they're saved. And let me suggest that because of this conclusion, because no one can be sure that they are saved, if you adopt viewpoint number two, it becomes, it becomes the functional equivalent of viewpoint number one. It becomes 
the functional equivalent of viewpoint number one. That no, you cannot be sure. I might put an equal sign between one and two. Because in the end, when two is closely inspected, it becomes viewpoint number one. What about a biblical answer? Let's, let's review the two that we've rejected. No, I can't. Only God knows if I'm saved. We have to reject that. The Bible says too often that you can be sure. Viewpoint two, yes, I can if I continue in the faith until I die. If I don't, I was never a Christian to begin with. I think we've debunked that. I think we can reject that viewpoint. And so I come to a third viewpoint. I don't come to this viewpoint from a system of theology. I come to this viewpoint from what the Scriptures are telling me about it. This is the third and biblical view of assurance. Yes, I can. If I believe Jesus' promise to me that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Yes, I can have assurance. If I believe Jesus' promise to me that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have Everlasting life. Folks, John 3.16 and many like it are promises to you and to me. They're promises. They're promises by God. They're promises by Jesus Christ to you and to me. And these promises spell out plainly, if you believe in me, Jesus says, you will live forever. And forever means forever. I tell you plainly, the assurance of salvation, whatever you've thought it to be before this message, I tell you plainly today, the assurance of salvation is not based on anything, anything, but the promises of Jesus Christ to us. This is assurance of salvation. To believe in Jesus and you will have eternal life. It is His promise. It is not examining our life of good works. It is His promise. It is not looking at ourselves and wondering, am I faithful? Am I committed enough? Am I Christian-like enough? It is His promise. It is not about you. It's not about your introspection. Your self-testing. You're looking at yourself. It's about Him. Do you want to stop doubting your salvation? Then stop looking at yourself. Start looking at the promises of God. Start looking at the promise of your Savior, Jesus Christ. Believe Him. Believe His promise to you and you will find that assurance. John 6.47, one of my favorites, says plainly, Most assuredly, Jesus says, I say to you, He who believes in Me has everlasting life. That's it. That is where you find assurance of salvation. My wife, my wife today, um, She's a confident woman in her faith. You know, she, 
she gave me permission to talk about this today. Obviously, I, you, some of you are thinking, wow, this is really a personal story about her. She wanted you to know this. She's uh, working in the nursery today. Actually, she's in the back. Um, she came, She snuck in. She wanted me to share this with you. She has confidence today. It's not confidence in herself. It's not confidence because she's a good person. And it's not confidence that's based on a good day or a good week or a good month of Christianity. It's confidence based on that. That's her confidence. And when that's your confidence, you will be assured that you are saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we confess that way too often, way too often, Lord, Your church has wrongly instructed its people to look at themselves for assurance. Father, have mercy on us for this error. Have mercy on us for thinking that we could identify whether or not we are saved based on our works or our perseverance or our obedience or our commitment. Shame on us, Lord. We ask Your forgiveness for thinking that. We confess that our assurance is now based on Your promise to us. Not based on ourselves. It's based on Your Son. Jesus Christ told us that if we believe in Him, we will be with Him forever. And Father, we embrace that promise. Father, I pray that anyone here today who has never believed Your promise, the offer of salvation, I pray that today in their hearts they would believe. They would believe that Your Son, Jesus Christ, is the Savior of the world, the giver of everlasting life. And I thank You, Lord, that they, they right now are a child of God. For those of us, many of us, who have lost our way, who have accepted that promise, and, and since have, have begun to once again look back at ourselves, Lord, forgive us for that and renew in us again that sense of assurance that we can have when we look at Your Word, at Your Son's words, at His promise that all who believe in Him have everlasting life. Thank You, Lord, that it is that simple. That it is that simple. I thank You, Lord, that You've reached down in Jesus Christ to save sinners. Lord, we accept that promise. We thank You for the gift of everlasting life. In Jesus' name. Amen.